Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. I think we're going to come away from this period in American history with some people actually trusting media more. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. It's a great pleasure personally for me to welcome a good friend and a famous person, for me at least, Brian Stelter to Good Company. Most of you know Brian as the host of CNN's Reliable Sources. I wake up to Brian many Sunday mornings on the West Coast feed, number one. And number two, Brian's also a well-known author now, having just completed a book called Hoax, which I'd love to talk about a bit. So Brian, welcome. Thank you. I'm just glad you're calling me famous and not infamous. There could be worse words. You are a fierce advocate for the media to tell the facts and kind of banish misinformation. You know, I'm older, but I grew up as you did, understanding that there were facts, not alternative facts. Mm -hmm. And misinformation is a scary thing. It seems to be everywhere we look right now. What is challenging the media? And, you know, we're coming off a winter and entering a spring relative to information and misinformation. What do you think are the biggest challenges for you as very much a part of the media in maintaining integrity? And how do we get over this hump? Going back seven years to when I joined CNN and I started hosting Reliable Sources, I think about how much the world has changed and how much media reporting has changed. Everyone is a source and everything is a source now. And everyone wants to know what is reliable and what is unreliable. You know, I used to be dubbed a media critic and people used to say, oh, he's the media critic. And in the last few years, I've really tried to get away from the term critic because Well, for one thing, everybody is a media critic now. (laughs) Everybody with a Twitter account is a media critic. You know, there's all this media criticism happening all the time. I think it's more valuable for me to step back and try to be an observer and a reporter of this world to see what's changing. And I think about what media criticism is now, and everybody's a critic. There's a lot of destructive criticism. There are a lot of people that are trying to tear down the media, trying to destroy institutions, trying to destroy the foundation trying to make it easier for alternative truths to dig into, to find roots and find a space. And what I think we need more of is constructive media criticism. We need to have constructive media criticism that builds up and tries to improve. And we need less of that destructive criticism. And obviously the outgoing president is the destructive media critic in chief. He is trying to destroy. I think the good news at the end of four years is he failed. Most people see right through his lies about the media, but unfortunately, many people buy into it. And I think that is the environment that I see as someone who tries to cover the media world and observe it. It seems to me there are far too many people trying to tear down, and we need more people who will criticize but try to build up, try to improve rather than tear down. Well, it's what we've always learned and what I've tried to teach where I've had the opportunity to teach is constructive criticism is a good thing. Destructive criticism is not. And it's funny, but as a consumer of news, and, you know, it leads me into my next question, 
certainly over this last 10 months, but I think it's probably over for me these last five years, news became the new sports for me. It certainly did for most people in this window of the pandemic uh, because it, it was a lifeline for so many. But what do you think is the long-term impact of that in terms of news being the new sports? Again, because we didn't have sports for a good portion of this pandemic, it was an outlet for people. Well, I think you're absolutely right that news has a bigger and bigger space in people's lives. It is treated in many ways like sport. And that's understandable. I mean, politics and sports do have a lot in common. There is this competition, this power dynamic, these battles. That is all true. But I also think it's dangerous in some ways to view news as sports, to view what is essentially fun commercial competition that we see on sporting events, the same as the high stakes of our lives and life and death and how to live our lives and how to govern our societies. What we need in politics is for the temperature to come down and the stakes to be lowered and for people to not feel like it's a life and death struggle and for it not to feel like an existential battle. So much of support for President Trump is wrapped up in this sense of loss, that Trump supporters feel they've lost something in America, that they're losing social status and they're trying to get it back. Well, last necessary. weekend he said we're all victims. I mean, he played right yes, into that. That quote, I think, should be a chapter of the final Trump story, an entire chapter. He said, we are all victims. It is the subtext of his presidency as text that it's about conservative victimhood. And to the degree that we all view this as a sporting competition, I think we're playing right into winners and losers and victims, as opposed to hopefully everybody can win and hopefully there can be common ground and consensus and decency and all these concepts that are so alien and foreign and missing from our politics right now. And where I think the role of the media comes in is the news media, the Jake Tappers and Lester Holtz and Nora O'Donnell's of the world, maybe also the Brian Silvers of the world, is to say decency is not partisan and democracy is not partisan. And when we see this undemocratic conduct happening from Republicans right now, to call that out is not a partisan act. It is a patriotic act. Yeah, no, Brian, I'm so with you on this. As Renee Zellweger was famous for saying, you had me at hello. And I believe you because, and believe me, I've said for five years, because I do have some friends that are in the Trump camp, more friends than I'd like to admit. And I have to say, I've looked at them for five years and said, this is not about politics. This is about right and wrong. This is about, and again, this sounds political, but I think what was said at the Democratic National Convention was right. This is a basic binary choice between good and evil. It really is to me. This is right versus wrong. This is not about politics. This is not about what party you belong to. This is not about should taxes be higher or lower. It's not about, you know, any of that. To me, it's just about decency. Well, I'm glad you said that about taxes. This is what happens to me, Michael, is, you know, I'll show up on Sean Hannity's show and they'll show a clip of me and they'll attack me. And then I'll get all these sometimes funny, sometimes nasty emails from Hannity's viewers. And when I think the people are persuadable and I can actually have a conversation, what I'll say to them is, I'm not on the air advocating for higher or lower taxes. I'm not on the air telling you what to do about capital gains. I'm not on the air telling you what to do about regulatory rollbacks. I'm just talking about truth versus total BS that we can all tell as disinformation. And we should all want to defend a world where there's common ground of fact and truth. What is so 
dispiriting about the Trump years is that he hit the media right in that softest spot where he could cut right into us. This idea that the media is fake, that the news is fake. It's the greatest damage he, he did. I think probably looking back in 50 years, we'll say that was the most poisonous thing he did was he called the press fake. And it created license for tens of millions of people to believe that if they don't like the news, they can believe the news isn't real. And what do we do to rebuild, I suppose, is the question I ask as we head into the Biden years. How do we convince Americans who have been told the news is fake that the news is flawed and imperfect, but real? Yeah, you know, I think back, and I do go back to my least favorite line about alternative facts. I remember thinking somebody missed the cartoon that should have appeared. It should have been Jack Webb in his overcoat from Dragnet showing up and saying, just the alternative facts, ma'am. You know, I don't think that was written in the script, <laughs> but here we are. I remember the morning. Where I was going is in hoax. Talk about that for a moment, because you found in that book, and I think defined in that book, exactly what's going on. There was a quarter. There was a place that these non-truths, this misinformation could get oxygen, because I am going to ask you the next question about when do we stop giving oxygen? to some of this, which I know I'm taking off the air from CNN today when, or last night, when someone asked Don Lemon, well, when are you going to continue to give him oxygen? And so right. I want to go there as well. Yeah, well, first of all, I remember so clearly the morning of alternative facts, because it was the first Sunday of the Trump presidency, and Kellyanne Conway was on the air trying to explain away the crowd size debacle to Chuck Todd. Now, the crowd size debacle was entirely Trump's creation. It was about his narcissism. That's a word we probably should have used more in the last four years. He was upset about crowd size coverage. And she said, here are facts, here are my alternative facts. And I remember that morning so clearly because I went on the air on CNN an hour later and I asked all these questions. I said, is this how it's going to be for four years? Is this what Trump's going to do? Is he going to lie about basic facts? Is he going to lie about what's in front of us? And I think the reason why it's important to look back at that now four years later is it did not have to be this way. It did not have to go this way. If people around Trump had tried to intervene, if they had succeeded, if the president himself had a better media diet, if the president had perhaps listened to the better angels in his mind and not the demons, it didn't have to go this way. He didn't have to lie every day. He didn't have to lie to the public about the truth. But he did, and we know what happened and he lost the election. Now, I argue in hoax that a big reason why it went this way is Fox News. I think when the stars on Fox were trying to help Trump, they actually heard him. They created this safe space that was actually dangerous, this space that was so protective, that told him what he wanted to hear, that made him think that his untruths were truths, to the point where it actually hurt him. Now, I would argue it actually hurt him in the election. I would argue that he could have maybe won re-election if he hadn't been so convinced of this alternative facts on reality. And then, of course, in Century City, you'd look to Lachlan and Rupert Murdoch and say, where were they? Where are they? Are they running the show or are they in absentia? And is that good or is that bad for Fox News? My impression from my sources is that stars on Fox, Fox and Friends, Hannity, Tucker, they have a lot of autonomy. They don't get held accountable when they go on the air and they get something wrong. And they might like that, but I think that's probably bad for viewers. Now, Lachlan and Rupert might have a totally different story to tell, and I really wish they would tell it. But, you know, they wouldn't talk to me for the book. They don't really give interviews about Fox. They don't, even on the investor calls, all they really talk about is how profitable Fox News is. And that is something we cannot deny. 
This no. is a big business. This alternative universe of right-wing information is a big business. And I think all the political activists on the left who want to see change, they have to reckon with the business part of the story. So, Brian, let me ask you about that sort of symbiotic relationship that's existed between Fox yeah. and Trump. And I agree with you, by the way. If I'm in an echo chamber, I'm never going to change my view. I can't tell you how many times I've had business circumstances where people will say to me, Michael, so-and-so wants to hear this. And my answer historically has been, well, that's great. They may be paying you to tell you what they want to hear. They're paying me to tell them what they need to hear. And in this case, (laughs) what you're saying is that echo chamber actually probably was a disservice because it's somebody like that stood up and said, "Uh uh-uh, not, don't, no, not the thing. That might've changed it. Who knows? I mean, you know, my sense is this guy rose people down that disagree, but at least there would have been another view on the other hand. Right. I think the president certainly does not want to hear dissent, but he's so addicted to television, so obsessed with what he hears on Fox, that I think if Fox had had more of a, not on the newscast, but on the talk shows that are really highly rated, more of a tell truth to power, as opposed to give power its own truth. It could have gone differently. Yeah, look, obviously we will never know for sure. But I would love to think about that alternative. But then, Brian, let's talk about what happens in the next four years. So that symbiotic relationship we've seen on the right, what happens in this context? And the new administration, you know, you're going to find things that aren't right. You're not going to hide them. You're going to talk about them. I know that. I mean, I know you, so I know you will. But Yeah, right. There's this expectation from pro-Trump media that the rest of the media is going to give Biden a pass. And already we see that's not true. And the Hunter Biden investigation is a great example. The transition team came out and acknowledged that Hunter is under investigation, in part after CNN called about it. And there have been other news outlets investigating as well, trying to find out what's going on with Hunter Biden. So certainly we're going to see lots of examples of the press holding Biden to account. However, there's going to be this anti-media segment, the Sean Hannity's, the Laura Ingram's, the Gene Pirro's. They're really, I know they are media, but they're anti-media. They are resistance, resentment media. They exist only in reaction to the rest of the media. They are there to tell you not to believe the rest of the media. And I think, you know, those folks are going to continue to tell a story that goes like this. The media is leftist. It's covering for Biden. They're protecting Biden. They're going to keep saying that even though it's it's being disproven every day. And in that noise and in this noisy media ecosystem, I think most people just want to know what is actually true. They just want to know what is actually true. And I wish that all of us in our own lives can help guide our friends and our family back to sources of news, not talk. There's obviously a role for talk, and I love a good talk show, and I do some talking of my own, but, you know... We need to support the foundation of this industry, which is the actual reporting in the news that funds and pays for the investigations into Trump and into Biden and into the cabinet and all the rest. But I think what we're going to see from Biden is a much more traditional relationship with the media, adversarial at times, using the press, holding press conferences, giving interviews to mainstream outlets. With regards to the media, he's really a centrist, an old school, you know, reading The Economist and reading The Washington Post and reading The New York Times. That is going to be a wild, kind of snap back to reality after four years of a Fox News president. So let's talk about that for a second, Brian, because there's two things I want to drill down on. One is that question I said earlier, maybe just a statement, not a question yet, about oxygen. And the second that I want to come back to 
is Section 230 and tech platforms, because I think that's such an important item uh, circulating all of this as it relates to news in general. News streams are not different than news shows. It's news. So the first question is, in the context of that oxygen, how does Jeff Zucker turn to you and say, the ratings don't matter, you know, 19 straight successes in terms of viewership? I hear people often say that Trump is good for ratings, that he's good for business. And my reaction is to change that sentence a little bit. I say news is good for ratings. News is good for business. Trump is very newsworthy and very shocking and very entertaining and outrageous and all the rest. But he's not the only form of news. He's not the only thing that generates news and attention. And actually, I find that lately, when Biden is holding an event, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of attention when Biden announces a cabinet member or gives a speech. Right now, Biden is good for ratings by that metric. Now, look, I get that Trump is different. He holds a rally and the ratings for Newsmax spike, the ratings for Fox spike. But we have seen CNN and MSNBC and the broadcast networks start to already turn away from that story because that story is inherently less newsworthy. I think in some ways, if Trump goes off and puts himself in a bubble and launches his own streaming service or something, he'll be even less of a story because he'll be reaching fewer people, right? If he's only, he had 73, 74 million voters, but most of them aren't going to subscribe to a Trump streaming service. Only a minority of those people would actually pay for his content. So I think in some ways, we're going to learn what the true Trump base is, what the size really is while most of the rest of the media cover the big story, which is the Biden presidency. Do you think I'm too what, Pollyannish? What's your view? No, Brian, I don't. I think that the story's gotten old. It got fresh life in the back of the election. But you're right. He's a showman. And it's brilliant. It is about oxygen, but it is about news. And you are, as you said, you're in the news business. And if it's newsworthy, that does lead as a good segue into the Section 230 arguments around the platforms. You are accountable for what you say. You are accountable for what you do because you have a license and you're a media company. I remember in the Super Bowl years ago when Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson had the famous wardrobe malfunction, CBS covered the Super Bowl that year, as you probably remember, and they were subject to fines to lose their license from the FCC, this or that because they were accountable in that way. The tech platforms, they don't have that accountability, as you well know. And my question is, do you think that happens? And if that Section 230 change occurs in terms of monitoring the tech platforms like media companies, A, do you think it will change? And B, what impact do you think it'll have? Well, I may be totally off base, but I'm looking at a U.S. Congress that can't even pass pandemic relief. And I don't know how in the world they're going to come together for a conversation about something as complicated as Section 230. Maybe that's too cynical and maybe I'm naive for some reason, but I would be shocked if we can find a bipartisan consensus, not that there's a problem, but that there is a solution. And I think it's going to require members of the public to be a lot louder about this issue than they are right now. It seems to me this is a base issue with the right-wing base. And for very different reasons, it's a base issue with some liberals. It doesn't seem to me like most Facebook users or Instagram users 
are crying out for change. And unless lawmakers are feeling that pressure, I'm not sure they're going to act. Now, that's my amateur analysis. Tell me what the expert (laughs) analysis is. Yeah, I think, look, I've believed for a long time that the tech platforms are masquerading as tech platforms. They're media companies. They may not have started out that way, but they're media companies. And I do think they have to be treated as media companies. It's almost an unfair advantage for them not to be because, again, the CBS example I used, whether Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson planted that or not, CBS would have borne the burden of it if the FCC had cracked down or fined somebody. So again, media companies are treated differently. My vote is the platforms are media companies and should be treated similarly. It means there is accountability, there is standards and practice. But can you get Capitol Hill, can you get Congress to follow through? No, I agree with you on what you said. I'm less novice than you think. I've actually had a part of my career where not as a lobbyist, but I actually represented a client as a lawyer where I actually had to go to Washington 36 years ago and change a law. So I've been through the process and I know how tough it is. I won. We got it done. We changed the law. But I felt like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and I learned well how you have to build consensus to get it done. And I did, but it was a good lesson. So Brian, if you were asked to prognosticate, here we are at the end of the year, we're still dealing with this election craziness. What's your take? I mean, you're on the firing line here and you are a reliable source. You always have been for me. (laughs) I think anybody who thought Trump was only going to hold out for a week or two was naive. And he's going to ride this for as long as he can and try to hold on to his fans for as long as he can, like an AD rock star who doesn't want to put out a final album, who wants to keep touring, even though there's fewer and fewer fans in the audience. But I think we're going to come away from this period in American history with some people actually trusting media more. The last four years has caused a lot of people to actually care more about the government, care more about politics, care more about media. They are more interested in how these worlds work. They care about facts and truth. And actually, a majority of American people, a significant majority, care deeply about having a reality-based conversation about the world. And unfortunately, what we've also seen is there's this minority of Americans who are under a, I don't want to say it's a spell. I don't want to say they're under Trump's spell, but I'm not sure how else to say it. It's a spell. And let's go with it. They are less and less trusting of media. They don't even want to watch movies on Netflix because they think Netflix is all about the Obamas. You know, there are these radicalized ideas that have to be addressed and have to be fought head on. And I think the way to do it is not to ignore these crazy ideas, pretend they don't exist. We have to fight it. We have to argue it out. We have to talk it out as a society. Look, Brian, my hope like yours is this cycle has ultimately built more trust in the media when you cut through the noise. That's what I'm wondering, and that's what I'm hoping. And I don't have a lot of data to prove it yet, but it's my gut feeling that most people don't obsess over politics as much as I do. That most people are more casual consumers of news. And even some folks who voted for Trump are more interested in coverage of the weather and crime and baseball and what's going on in the box office and that the news media ecosystem is so much bigger than politics. And to the extent that people 
view Trump or Biden as a way to get into the news and start watching more CNN, that's great. And hopefully then they're going to learn more about the pandemic and be more informed and safer in their lives. We need to be looking for ways to get people on ramps and get more people invested and more people informed, because I think there's actually a huge audience out there that is not a part of these disinformation wars, that is not stuck in the muck on Facebook, but just wants to know what is true. And there's opportunity there in that audience. So, Brian, it's January 20th. You're the programmer. You have a decision to make. Donald Trump doesn't show up at the inaugural, and he does a dramatic exit on Marine One and Air Force One and lands at Mar-a-Lago and holds a rally. Do you cover it? I believe the major networks, NBC, ABC, CBS, CNN, will, if this happens, they will briefly show the rally, probably not even air any of it, just acknowledge that it's happening. It's the former president. He's made a choice to snub the country, snub the inauguration. But no, I don't think it'll be shown live. And then I think the really interesting question is, what does Fox News do? Fox News wants to be taken seriously. The Murdochs want Fox News to be taken seriously because they want advertisers to keep paying and they want cable operators to keep paying. If Fox News goes down a path where it is running the government in exile show and ignoring the inauguration, that would be a disturbing path. And I don't believe they would do that, by the way. After all, Fox News called Biden the president-elect just like every other network. Fox News knew the truth and reported the truth before its opinion hosts went off the rails. Yeah, And that struggle for the soul of Fox News is a hell of a story that I want to keep covering. But I believe on January 20th, it'll be Biden's day and all responsible news outlets will know that. Well, Brian, that's a great point to end on because you are are reliable, (laughs) you are trustworthy, and you're a good friend. I want to thank you because I was keen to have this conversation because I feel like I have stuff to say, but I'm jealous as hell that you get to actually have the megaphone to say it and you say it so well. Oh, well, come on Reliable Sources sometimes. We'll have fun. Thank you for everything that you do. I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications at MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Ernie Indradat.